What do you know about that, man? As biologists, we, we catch ducks and we place bands on them. Wouldn't be able to hold anything down. No doubt. All right, Lee, well, it's recording, so we're going right now. Okay. We can start it right here, the very first podcast. Mm -hmm. I guess we ought to do introductions since it's the first one. I'm Chase Winninger, the host of the new Kentucky Field Podcast, and down with Lee McClellan. Co-host of the new Kentucky Field Podcast and associate editor of Kentucky Field Magazine. There we go, yeah. Lee, how long have you been with the department? I've been here 18 years. 18 years, so 17 years longer than I have. <laughs> yeah, so yeah they haven't run me off yet. It's amazing. Yeah, but this... uh. Yeah, that is kind of amazing, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, well, you must be doing something right. But I stumble across one every once in a while. This uh, this podcast is brand new. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a podcast in the past, but that was Charlie Baglin's radio show. Charlie, of course, retired, so mm -hmm. we're firing this up to to start things anew with uh, Kentucky Field. And it's kind of a, a combination effort between the magazine and the TV show mm -hmm. coming together to create this. And it's kind of cool because we got a lot of perspectives going on. The magazine covers its own topics and mm -hmm. does its own things. And of course, the TV show does the same thing. So hopefully this will and be- And we a, overlap quite a bit too. Oh yeah, of course, especially on important or, or really interesting topics. We all want to be there and mm -hmm. all want to cover it. So, but this, this ought to be a good mesh, mm -hmm. if you ask me. I agree. And uh, I'm hoping that we can Accomplished quite a few goals with the podcast. Uh, there are things I have in mind that I would like to to get done, and a lot of it goes hand in hand with what the magazine, and the TV show already do. Mm -hmm. Like I want to show people new opportunities. Yes. Not, and, and I mean that that includes experienced people who are already, who are already enjoying the outdoors. Mm -hmm. Like I want to be able to show them, you know, here's a new float you might be able to do, or here's mm -hmm. a new technique you might be able to try. Yes. And show them those opportunities. But I also think it's important that we try to show people who might not be experienced outdoors people how they can get into it. Yes. And I think that's a big part of what we're going to have to do because, as you know, license sales are declining. Mm -hmm. So in the future, there's going to be less people who are able to teach people mm -hmm. on their own. So people are going to need to be more able to go out there and get started on their own as well. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's and I see you know I see a future that that may be turning around in that direction too with with the, you know, locavore movement with you know hunting is actually a little bit on an uptick. Locavore movement. Uh, people wanting to control their food supply, know where it comes from. Um, have, have embraced eating wild game. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, and, and uh, down the road, I think people are going to kind of return to that, that style of life that, that our grandparents knew. I hope so. Great-grandparents knew. I hope so. I know I, that's very true. I hadn't heard that, that term before, locavore. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's true. People are definitely moving that direction. Yeah, they want to know where their food comes from. And not just that, but a lot of people are unhappy with factory farming mm -hmm. and just industrialized meat farming. Mm -hmm. And it's an alternative. Yeah, it is. It's like it's a better alternative. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's completely different for the animal, and uh, a lot of people talk about that. I've even heard people take it as far as to talk about global warming and the greenhouse just emissions, mm -hmm. and talk about how much better for the environment it would be to harvest wild game mm -hmm. as opposed to factory farming operations where you have to transport, you know, the meat here and there, and and burn fuel and dedicate ground mm -hmm. that's clear cut for for animals and wildlife or not wildlife, just animals. Mm -hmm. But if you're hunting, all that's just in the natural swing of things. So, Yes, it is. It's much more efficient. And, you know, you tend to understand your footprint better when you have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Um, instead of it handing to you perfectly, you have to deal with, you know, all aspects of processing. So that's good. So maybe people will be getting into it more on their own, but I, I do want to open that door. Yeah. I want I to show them how they can do it. And a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be geared towards that. So I'm excited for it. Me too. You know, another thing... Um, 
I'm not sure how you got into the outdoors. How did, how did you get introduced to it? Uh, mainly through my grandfather. Your grandfather? Mm-hmm. And my dad, but my grandfather. What they? How, how did that happen? Well, he got me fishing when I was young, and my grandmother and granddad loved fishing. Mm-hmm. He loved to eat bluegill. He loved to eat bass. And I was lucky, too. Uh, some of my great uncles had, had land. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had farm ponds. We had access to it. That's good. So fishing mainly, though. And Yes. And my brother got me into hunting. Uh, what kind of hunting do you do now? Um, I love to dove hunt. I okay. love to waterfowl hunt. And you said you went quail and pheasant hunting this past weekend. I sure did. With so, my brother. So, yeah. I, and I've, I've done rabbit and squirrel. But I tend to uh, enjoy hunting things more that I really like eating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, when I talk to you, I always talk to you about fishing. Mm-hmm. And, but, I'm, of course, I know you hunt as well, but mm-hmm. it seems like fishing's really where you're... I love it, yeah. yeah it's yeah, always yeah. been my first... Ate up with it. Yeah, I Yeah, am. for sure. And actually, the first time I met you, we were fishing. Yeah, it and was. Maybe, maybe I was introduced to you around the office, but that Floyd... No, I, that, that when we went Floyd's Fork. Yeah, yes. that, was, that was a lot of fun. That was fun. Yeah. Tough day fishing, though. It was low so and clear fun. conditions, but we caught some. It was hot. Yeah, it was. For, for October, it was unusually I hot. can't remember the water temperature, but the water temperature was even really hot. For that time of year, it was yeah. phenomenally hot. And it was... Super low and super clear. So you got introduced to it by family, for the yes. most part. Well, when I was, and so that's kind of good because we kind of got different ends of the spectrum. I, well, I guess my dad did take me fishing when I was younger, but I'm more like where you're more fishing. Mm-hmm. I'm probably more hunting. Yes. And uh, when I think about how I got into hunting, I was pretty much on my own. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. There's a when I was 10 years old, actually, I got Christmas money, and then I went to the flea market in Shelbyville. Do you know that flea market mm-hmm. right off exit 28? Yep. And I bought a bear whitetail too that was used for 75 bucks. Mm-hmm. And then I started practicing with it. And I mean, long story short, I, I went and I knocked on some doors and I got permission to deer hunt five acres up on Jephthanob. Mm-hmm. You probably know Jephthanob too. Very well. That's probably part of you being the Kentucky history. Mm-hmm. It's an unusual feature, yeah. you know. Well, they say it's the backside of a crater from a meteor. Mm-hmm. Is that true? I've heard that. I've heard it's just an erosional. It's just for some reason that, that cap rock there is more resistant, kind of like the knobs. Hmm. You know, that's pretty much what the knobs are, is some, some resistant stone surrounded by less resistant stone. That makes sense. People say it's a big meteor crater. But I've heard that, too. Yeah, it almost looks like it. Maybe that's just a, a funner story to tell. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, I got permission to hunt that five acres. I got my bow. I practiced with it. Nobody in my family deer hunted or anything like that. And I remember going up there on the opening day of deer season. My dad dropped me off about half an hour before the sun came up. And I never had gone out and sat in the woods by myself as a little kid before mm-hmm. in the dark. So I don't know if you ever had experienced that when you were real little, but oh, it's, kind, it's kind of different when you're about 10 or 11 years old and you're mm-hmm. up there just sitting in the dark. It's cool. Yeah, very cool. Oh, it's just a learning And I did experience. that in Boy Scouts. I mean, we get up early for those kinds of, you know. Boy Scouts also played a role in oh, yeah, I'm sure. my passion in the outdoors. So anyway, sitting up and I'm <laughs> getting into deer hunting. Mm-hmm. First time I'd ever been, Dad dropped me off, sitting in the dark by myself waiting hear something right as the sun's coming up and i looked over to my left and there's this doe walking right towards me you ever you do deer hunt at all no i don't i you know i'm just a turkey but i never have deer so my brother gives me venison so during that time is when i really want to be my last good fishing yes so but when you turkey hunt you probably get a little case of buck fever Mm -hmm. you know get excited oh i do yeah and i I love watching them you know i mean i'll go out there and i love watching them so when i was that little kid sitting in the deer stand and i looked over and i saw that deer coming towards me first time i'd ever been deer hunting like i i can remember how i couldn't breathe Mm -hmm. i don't know does that make sense at all yes couldn't breathe felt like my heart was just pounding and i i was it was i never had experienced anything like it before when i was that age but the deer comes in, and it's coming towards me, and I'm thinking about where I need to aim, how far my shot's going to be, and all this. And I shoot, and I remember I guessed 20 yards on the deer. 
and I saw the arrow hit it, and I remember it running towards me, and then around to my right, and it went down about 50 yards away. And I'd watched all the uh, monster buck videos and all mm-hmm. the hunting shows, so I knew, you know, you're supposed to, I knew what they always say on the show. But I was a little kid who was more excited than he'd probably ever been in his life. Mm-hmm. So I was very impatient. So I got down and I walked right over to it. And that was a little bit different too. Just, you know, like appreciating the animal mm-hmm. and experiencing all that for the first time. But like I said, I was 11, so there was no cell phones. Yeah. Even if there were cell phones, I wouldn't have had a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a set time. My dad was going to pick me up. And I remember I drug that deer over there. And I was sitting in the driveway with the deer waiting. It was probably about three hours later he pulled up. And I mean, when he saw I actually got a deer, it was, it was like... You know, it's so so happy. Mm-hmm. I was happy. He was kind of shocked because then he had to figure out what to do with this deer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I got I got lucky, but it was a that's how I got into hunting. So I, I had to do it on my own. Is basically the point of that mm-hmm. story. I had to kind of teach myself and learn the whole way. So I don't know. I like I like I like the idea that people will be able to do that too for themselves. And I'm not sure how many kids are getting out there and doing it these days, but I hope it's a lot. You know, there used to be a club that. Uh my neighbor across the street was like a second father to me mm-hmm. and he took us dove hunting when we were little now i was when i was too young he'd let me sit in the back of his uh, white gmc he drove forever it had three under tree oh yeah you remember those oh yeah um and he would let me watch until i got older but this this sporting club he belonged to had boys night mm-hmm. and until you got to i think 11 or 12 you had to shoot what was called mosquito which is the little bitty you shoot it with a 22, uh-huh. and the, they were little bitty clays, and you shot them with snake shot. And it was really hard. Uh, oh, yeah. Then then you had to graduate up to shotgun. I never had even thought about that before, mm-hmm. shooting yeah. a flying target with 22 snake shot. Yeah, but, I mean, it was a little tiny. They mm-hmm. called they called it, that's what my memory tells me. This was, you know, a long time ago. What they call it? Uh, mosquito. Mosquito. And it, like was a mos- little, it was a little black uh, clay pigeon like the knockoff of a mosquito mm-hmm. yeah i guess mosquito. yeah if, if memory serves correctly that's what i remember calling it i could be mm-hmm. butchering it yeah i've never heard of that that's interesting but it was great and then you graduated to shotgun mm-hmm. uh, i wonder but, if they did that just for the recoil reasons trying to get you used to shooting they didn't want you to be intimidated yeah. by that's good know, that's good practice you know to get you from and then they fed you all the hamburgers and hot dogs and pop you could shove down i come home sick to my stomach from drinking five dr peppers that sounds and awesome six hot dogs and he dropped me off at home i mean he was a great great guy yeah well, that's good um, and he taught my brother and all of us you know and he was he was in the league of kentucky sportsmen mm-hmm. uh, he was extremely uh, ethical mm-hmm. and he taught us the importance of ethics and, and that's good he also let me drive his truck when i was like five but he ran the clutch and the oh, gas yeah. and he let me steer well, that's, that's, that's good you know? <laughs> he'd say leave we go off the ditch we're gonna have to walk home <laughs> I'm sure he's ready to grab that wheel. Oh yeah, he was. But yeah. he just let me know not to be a not to be a peckerhead. That's know? good. I knew people like that who I mean, people who had shooting ranges at their their house, and the, you know the kids come over and they would give lessons and mm-hmm. and all kind of. I was a member of the 4-H shooting team uh, back in the day, high school shooting team as well. But it's good to have those people. But I almost feel like with the politics, maybe it's just because I'm getting older and I'm paying more attention to it mm-hmm. that there's people are developing more of a stigma one way or the other towards firearms and their kids. So. I'm almost worried that people are going to be hesitant to let their kids get more involved just because they're more worried about the firearms aspect of it. And in the wake of what's happened recently, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's a tender issue. you know. Yeah. But I, in my opinion, the solution is education. Yeah, I, agree. I think people need to be uh, knowledgeable about firearms and mm-hmm. kind of need to. I'd like people to be able to take a safety course. Mm-hmm. Anytime they, it's like that stigma is actually driving people towards driving us towards a more dangerous society. People being afraid and uneducated. It stinks. Yeah. But, you know, our hunter, Ed, if you work the phones here, mm-hmm. 
and fall, Hunter Ed is, is easily available. Just yeah, call the 1-800-858-1549. Not just that, but our camps do a lot to educate mm-hmm. kids as they well. Do. I remember when I was a kid going to conservation camp. Got to shoot shotguns and twenty twos and twenty twos and uh, learned how to learned how to drive an outboard. Yeah, that's it true. Was, it was a tiller drive. <laughs> that's true. I wrote this in a column several years ago, but you know, tiller drive is backwards. So yeah. I'd you know, if I wanted to go right, I'd put it right and I would go left. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was intimidated at first until right. I figured out, oh, that's right. If I pull it to the left, the, it's going to go right. If I pull it, push it to the right, it's going to go left. But it I, took me a while to figure that that's out. That's funny. I completely forgot about the boating part of that. Mm-hmm. When you're at the camps, you get free time mm-hmm. uh, in the evening where you get to pick what activity you want to go do. Mm-hmm. And I think I always did fishing or archery. I did fishing a lot. Yeah, and but the the boating one was probably the. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you, but it was it was good. Yeah, didn't you have to work your way into boating? I think didn't you have to pass before they took you out on the. You probably on had the to lake do the canoe a, one first. Yes, I think so. It was a, you had to graduate, if memory yeah. serves correctly. I think you did the canoe one and maybe the swimming one. Yeah. And yeah. then you could go out then, and do then, the then you could do boating. Which makes earn, sense. That's a good progression. You had to earn your way to boating. Oh, well. We've been rambling, Lee. Mm-hmm. We've been going over some, some stuff I had no idea we were going to talk about. And I guess that's probably how this is going to go. Because <laughs> yeah. honestly, I just want to sit down, and we, whether it be you or whether we have another guest on. And there's a couple of guests I have in mind that I'd like to bring on. Mm-hmm. I just want to have a conversation with them. You know, no bullet points or... No real plan. I just want to be able to pick people's brain. I might have something on my mind, or you might have something on your mind that you mm-hmm. want to ask about or want to get a conversation going about. But really, I just want to have genuine conversations with people and see where it leads. <clears throat> I've been just all weekend. wonder why. This weather up and down. And yeah. And then I was around people smoking cigars and stuff and, yeah. and, and in a closed environment. I had a throbbing headache next Man. day. Two days ago, uh, I, I'm running a few traps for a landowner right now. Mm-hmm. A few days ago, I was out checking my traps. Two days ago, there's snow on the ground. And uh, yesterday, I was out there fishing in a T-shirt. Yeah, no. Yeah. One it's going to be 80 next. tomorrow. That's what I'm saying. It's crazy. And then it'll probably be 15 the the week after. Who oh, knows? No. It's going to be ridiculous. It will be. I don't mind the 80, though, because I'm really looking forward to going fishing. Mm-hmm. I wish it would warm up and, and stay about like that for a little bit so I get out in the creek. No doubt. But the but, creek is just going to be high, high. Uh, For who knows how long. So even though all the streams and creeks are blown out right now, reservoirs are still an option. They are. So, Not all, but Laurel, Dale would be a good place to, to some, go and fish right now. Some of the southeast reservoirs. Yeah, that didn't that don't have such a big drainage basin like like Lake Cumberland. I was on Dale just a few weeks ago mm-hmm. shooting a piece. And this actually works out pretty well because I saw your magazine article about the float and fly. Mm-hmm. And that's what the piece we were shooting was down on Dale Hollow. And if I'm not mistaken, you went to Cumberland mm-hmm. for your piece on the float and fly? Yes, I did. That was a good good piece. And honestly, you know, that was the first time I'd ever seen the float and fly fished. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't know much about it before then, but it was an interesting technique. Yeah, it's very, it's it's so much fun because you're you're basically bluegill fishing. Yeah. Except it could be a twenty one inch smallmouth at the other end well, instead of an eight inch bluegill. Well, that's what your article said. That it was discovered by some crappie fishermen. Mm-hmm. It was. Who was fishing deep for crappie and kept catching big bass. Yeah, and, and getting mad because they were breaking off all the crappie juice. That's ridiculous. Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. But, hey, people are about crappie. They're about crappie, man. Uh, you know. I, I understand. I like crappie fishing. I yeah. love crappie fishing. But there's something about, especially like a Dale Hollow mm-hmm. smallmouth. No. Oh, it's just awesome. You know, um, a former fisheries director, and he's 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 passed now. Uh, assistant director told me that, and it's true. The three biggest smallmouths ever came out of Dale, but the genetics of the Upper Cumberland uh, region mm-hmm. of that drainage, the smallmouth genetics just produce you know gigantic fish. Oh yeah, I mean the world records out of there. And mm-hmm. you said the the top three smallmouths are all from Dale Hollow. So, I think six out of the top ten are from Dale Hollow. Say, so I looked at a list one time that. It wasn't just size of the smallmouth, but mm-hmm. it took into consideration tackle. 
mm-hmm. and line weight, but it had uh, three of the top ten listed as being from Del Hollow in the world. Mm-hmm. And this is including Japan and stuff like that, too, oh, I, I believe. It's, an, it's incredible. It's awesome. It's, we're lucky to have something like that there. But And, uh, you know, John Williams, who just retired as a fisheries biologist, thought that laurel, if you wanted to catch one over seven pounds, he thought laurel may be your best option in the tri-state area. Yeah. He told me that. We went down there and we actually fished uh, laurel with John. It was mm-hmm. one of my first, my other first shoots I went on. And he said that the biggest largemouth, biggest smallmouth, and biggest walleye he'd ever seen it all come out of laurel. I know. But Dale's known for it. Yeah. And I feel like laurel's Dale's really, a lot easier to fish than laurel. Yeah, laurel is saying. a tough, tough lake. Yeah. Laurel is a lake. I mean, we get phone calls here. People say they've been out on laurel three or four times and haven't gotten a bite, and they're wondering how to do it because it's a very tough lake. Yes. But I've gone out on Dale with Chad here, and we've been looking for our 25th fish before lunch. I know. You know what I mean? Yes, so, no doubt. I think I'd probably pick Dale. But, <laughs> yeah, I would do. I've, I've spent a lot of time on Laurel. I used to camp on Laurel. The key to Laurel is it has to be overcast. Yeah. And it's actually better in a light rain. Because it's so clear? Because it is so clear. They're just so spooky during the day. Mm-hmm. And, and really early and really late. But, uh, you know, if you want to fish all day on laurel, overcast skies are almost mandatory. Laurel's strange, too. I remember we were out there on the boat, and we were literally sitting right off the shore. Mm-hmm. I mean, right off the shore, and the depth finder was reading like 170. Oh, I know. It's ridiculous. And you can see down sometimes. It gets really low and clear in the summer. Yeah. I've uh, snorkeled in and looked down and got you see hickory shad and fish really? swimming everywhere. Way down there. You're like, I, oh I might my go God. do that. I might go do that. Yeah, it's love, really cool. I love snorkeling. Mm-hmm. I, I usually do it in the creeks, but I'll go, I mean, a crystal clear lake. I remember I watched the Kentucky Field segment on Cumberland. We were snorkeling one time. Mm-hmm. That's another crystal clear lake. It's not as clear as Laurel. I think Laurel's the gin clearest of all of them. I'd say so. It's probably the deepest, too. Mm-hmm. Well, Cumberland's pretty deep, too. I think Cumberland reads 170-something right below the dam or right above the dam. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it gets deeper than that, but I think Laurel's 200 in some places. Yeah, and it's like Cumberland, too. You're 10 feet off the bank. You can be in 90 feet of water. It's crazy. And a creek arm. But going back to what we were talking about, floating fly. Yes. Like I said, first time I'd ever seen it. I'm pretty sure you're, you're a fan of it. You've fished it several times. Oh, I've fished it all the time. I love it. How many years have you been doing it? Um, I think 2003, maybe, yeah. was it? So I've been doing it a dozen years or so. When do you think it was created i believe in the early two the late 90s early 2000s okay so you were early on the on the curve mm-hmm. good deal and uh, a friend of mine got turned on to it and killed him and then he started pulling my legs and hey you know you need to go so the, for those people who, who might not know about the float and fly it's like you said you're basically bluegill or crappie fishing you're fishing under a float mm-hmm. and uh somewhere between nine and 12 feet deep yep. you might be able to fudge that a little bit yeah and, and sometimes, uh, like Laurel, you'll probably want to go more toward 12 to 14 if you yeah, can get away with it. Water clarity, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it has to do with the temperature. Yes. But it's a cold water technique. Mm-hmm. Mostly going to fish during the winter because the like the shad, the alewives. Are, are, are stressing. Yeah, they're stressing, dying. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the bass are keyed in on. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're you're floating a minnow or a minnow imitator. Mm-hmm. I think your guy was using hair jigs, mm-hmm. and our guy was using plastic minnow imitators. Yeah, see, I've done, that's a new one on me when you told yeah. me that the other day. So so we're fishing those uh, 9 to 12 feet deep, mm-hmm. and it just looks like one of those stressed bait fish. And that's what the bass are keyed in on. It looks exactly like yeah. it. And since, uh, since you're able to keep your bait right where you want it mm-hmm. with the float above it, it's just a super effective technique. It is. And, and at that time of year... The, the big small mouse are, and, and you want to have big water behind you. You know, you want to be on that part of the lake where you've got a lot of big, fat, yeah. deep water to your back. Main channel points and things like things that. Things like that. Um, and they just follow those bait fish schools around. And, what you know, when you cast out, you need a long spinning rod, at least eight feet long. Yeah. And you can get them, several places have them, and they're not, they're not overly expensive. 
Or you can do like Jerry's technique in our last issue of, the, of Kentucky Field Magazine. He does his with an eight weight fly rod uh -huh. and a, a 48 ounce uh, fly. Yeah. Most of the time you use a 16th ounce fly. They can be made of uh, craft hair or duck feathers. And the term fly comes from, it's a Kentucky and Tennessee thing, a hair jig is a fly. Uh -huh. And so, you know, you used to hear the flying rind back in the day. That was a bucktail jig with a pork trailer. Yeah. Um, for, oh, yeah. yeah. So down here, parlance is fly. But a lot of people that hear fly, they think of fly fishing, but yeah. the fly part of the floating fly is a little hair jig. Yeah, our guy was fishing a spinning setup. He had a nine mm -hmm. or nine and a half foot mm -hmm. uh, light action fast rod. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was fishing it with, like I said, a spinning reel and braid to the bobber and mm -hmm. then a floral leader. Well, yeah. Your guy, actually, he, he sounds like he was going more for the floating fly mm -hmm. aspect of it. He, yeah. was, he was trying to hit that fly. He was. And, and it's hard to cast anything that much over that weight yeah. on a fly rod. But, man, Jerry's a world-class ca world uh, caster. Yeah. And he caught some beauties that day. Yeah, that's awesome doing it on a fly rod. I love fly fishing. But the point is you don't really have to have a specific tackle setup. You can mm -hmm. do it with... You know, a spinning rod, or mm -hmm. a fly rod, or you really do want a long rod, a long you, rod. You have though. to to cast it. Yeah, Chad was calling it a uh, a buggy whip. Noodle mm -hmm. rod. Yeah, because you got so much line out in front of you, it's mm -hmm. almost like an old horse and buggy, like the whip mm -hmm. that, that somebody would have to try to reach that lead horse up there. And and some people like, like you said, they like braid to a three-way swivel and they clip a bobber on one yeah. and then drop a mm -hmm. four or six-pound fluorocarbon leader yeah. off the other. And if somebody that's listening, I, I, if we don't describe this well enough mm -hmm. right now, the magazine article is mm -hmm. a good way to find out. And you can also get on YouTube and look at the, the show. And Kentucky I've written Field. several uh, Kentucky Field Outdoors columns on there. If you yeah. Google floating fly fishing wildlife, you'll get a lot of information. I got a feeling it's a technique that's probably going to take off. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess you'd covered it in the past. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't seen a lot of it. And when we posted some stuff to Facebook on the Kentucky Field page, it got some got some views and people mm -hmm. wanted to go try it. And just a good technique. I've gotten I, good feedback from the article as well. I feel like if you want to take a kid fishing or get a kid into fishing, mm -hmm. you probably want to do it when it's warm. Yeah, no doubt. But if you if you catch one of those warmer days in the winter, mm -hmm. the water's still cold, the fish are still going to react. It really does great now in February, March, because the water temperatures are, if you want it 48 or below for it to be best. But the yeah. colder, the better for the floating fly, because it stresses the shad even more. But it seems like it'd be a good technique to teach a kid on it would it bridge that gap maybe get them catching some big fish oh on, my god on bobber setup oh they'll they'll freak out the oh, bluegill will be a disappointment after oh, yeah. that. <laughs> the bluegill look like bait <laughs> no, no that, doubt. that'd be awesome i mean no it was doubt. a lot of fun and it's different i since like i told you i hadn't fished it before and the biggest challenge for me was seeing my my bite mm -hmm. because i'm so used to feeling it mm -hmm. you know and I, I did a lot of night fishing mm -hmm. so i wouldn't i would never look at my line never look i would just feel everything i'd be looking at birds flying or mm -hmm. talking to somebody when you're floating fly fishing you it's visual yeah and it'll go down and pop back up too yep. but but just watch that bobber if it goes down set the hook oh yeah sometimes they'll just come up and mouth it and pull it down like three or four inches and just lay there and you can catch a lot of fish i mean not a lot of you can catch numbers but i mean a lot of species mm -hmm. uh greg brizendine the guy we went down with he he caught his biggest walleye fishing mm -hmm. floating fly I think i've caught big walleye on the floating fly down to dale i think he'd caught big trout too mm-hmm and, I uh, caught a trout on Laurel with Chad one day really? on the floating fly. Well, see, I mean, you can catch anything doing it because you're mm -hmm. imitating that dying bait fish, and it's not like just the bass are going to be keyed in. Mm -hmm. Every hungry predatory fish is going to be looking for something to eat. Jerry that day caught a monster hand-sized bluegill when we d did the photo shoot for this <laughs> magazine piece. You got any pictures of it in there? Um, I do, but not in that piece. I'll flip through here real quick. And I've caught big crappie, um, spotted bass, largemouths, walleye, 
small and in addition to i've had the striper on but it spooled me and snapped no. off well you're fishing we were fishing eight pound flora mm-hmm. as our leader i think that the braid would probably hold up a striper mm-hmm. maybe maybe not but the, the, i usually use um there's two two um schools of thought on as well i use four pound fluoro mm-hmm. or a four pound mono yeah. and just clip a bobber onto my line that way i can adjust it quicker mm-hmm. and when you're out on a windy boat if you have to retine on it and do a new leader it's kind of a pain in the butt yeah. when when the wind's blowing and stuff. Jerry McDaniel turned me on to using a quick strike indicator um, for the float and fly. When you're using a fly rod, and I used it on my spinning gear and it worked well. It was invented for people um, waiting out for steelhead out west. Uh-huh. And you have a long leader with that as well. And, and, and one thing about the fly is you've got a bobber, you've got a, anywhere from a nine to 12 foot leader to mm. try to guide the fish into a net or landing yeah. can be really problematic. With the quick strike, when you feel tension and the fish takes off, it pops that bobber loose and slides to the fish, and it makes it a lot easier to land. That might be something people need to see mm-hmm. to completely understand. But you got this nice graphic here in the magazine article. Mm-hmm. And uh, so essentially, basically, you don't have a bobber in your way of getting this fish in. Exactly. Because it slides back down, it slides right down once you set the hook. I've got some good pictures with uh, of, of Jerry with, with, that, with the quick strike right in the fish's mouth. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I never had to use I, I mean, I was battling that issue. Mm-hmm. But I never have used a quick strike before. I've lost fish at the boat trying to Hort. deal with a bobber and a nine nine half foot long leader and talk about twenty inch smallmouth. <laughs> talk about taking somebody who might not be that experienced out there, a kid or just anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, fighting that bobber is going to be an issue for them. Mm-hmm. So this it, could make it a little bit easier. Yeah, it will. Yeah. And a good net man will help too, because you can knock a fish off really easy. I've done it. People have done it to me. I've done it to other people. It's okay. no fun. I say it hadn't happened to me. I have, but I don't. I never have had a boat. Mm-hmm. I'm a kayak fisherman. Yeah, I've probably done it to myself. Yeah, but I have to. I've lost many at the at the boat in a kayak trying to grab a smallmouth. I had this woman text me twice this last weekend asking uh, what was a good fishing kayak she could get for under one hundred fifty dollars. Well, um, the kind that you find in your dreams. No. Yeah, that's, that's, that was, you said well. Uh, I thought you were getting ready to tell me. Uh, no. Uh, one thing that's happened is kayaking is really popular, mm-hmm. and everybody's looking for a used one. Everybody that calls you, I want to use kayak, I want to use kayak. And I speak to a lot of fishing groups around the state, and I've, I spoke to the League of Kentucky Sportsmen about this very topic uh, last year. Um, it's better just to, to wait until you can afford a good boat. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't. If you can find a used, one of the higher-end ones, uh, you know, a used Jackson, a used Native, a used Hobie like you have. Yeah, I got um, lucky. Uh, Wilderness Systems, uh, Ocean Kayak. Those are the good brands. The ones, the department store ones that are $200 new, um, two good rocks on a drop in Elkhorn, and you might pop that one. I'll if t- you're going to use it on a farm pond and that's it, then those are fine. I'll tell you what, it's funny you say that because, I mean, like you said, I have a Hobie, but I know a lot of people who get those $200 and under kayaks, mm-hmm. and they, they enjoy them. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably get their 200 bucks out of them, but mm-hmm. they aren't going to last. So I've banged that Hobie around so bad, you oh. wouldn't believe it. Oh, the bottom of my native looks like you took an ice scraper to oh, it. Man. It looks terrible. But, I but actually, it floats like a champion. My uh, A friend of mine, I, she uh, busted the bottom of her cheap $200 kayak open mm-hmm. on rocks in Elkhorn Creek. So it's <laughs> like you called that shot. Mm-hmm. Some JB Weld got it fixed up, but it's not going to last forever. No. Now, if, if you're going to use it just on a farm pond or maybe even the small lakes, those those are adequate. But yeah. the seats on those don't work very well. Nothing's worse than having a sore back from 
being in a kayak with that has a real thin yeah. padded seat. It's a lot of it's about what you're going to do with the kayak as well. Exactly. Because like the Hobie, I almost think the Hobie is a little big for Kentucky. Mm-hmm. When I go out on Cave Run or I go out on Cumberland or Dale. How long is your boat? Uh, it's a 14. Okay. that's that. It's a Mirage Pro Angler 14. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, I got it used. Like you said, got a good deal on it. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty lucky. But it for the Elkhorn, which mm-hmm. is where I've done a lot of my fishing over mm-hmm. the last few years or any of the other creeks, it's probably a hair bit big. It does yes. it does ride a little high in the water because it's got a lot of capacity, mm-hmm. which is nice. I like being able to, I can bust through riffles easier in my mm-hmm. Hobie than I can a small boat. Mm-hmm. But I've had that thing out on the ocean battling waves before. And then 14-footer is mainly for flat water. You know, yeah. you just, I've, I've written several stories in, in a local outfitter here. Um, Canoe, Kentucky? Yes. Nathan and I, he said, leave for Kentucky for all around a 12-footer. Yeah. 11 to 12 footer is great. Now, if you're going to mainly use it on small lakes, a 13 up to a 14. And a lot of people don't realize the longer the kayak, the faster. Yeah. The wider and shorter, the slower. Yeah. But when you're on a stream, speed is not, you're not worried about it. You're mm-hmm. in current. But if you're on like Beaver Lake in Anderson County or, you know, Elmer Davis or any of those, then speed might be more of a, more of a factor. Yeah. But. Those guys down at Canoe, Kentucky, I see them. You mm-hmm. know, they'll do clinics out on uh, Benson Creek in downtown Frankfort, mm-hmm. and I'll go put on Benson, sometimes to fish the Kentucky River, sometimes to go upstream mm-hmm. in Benson. And I'll see those guys out there doing clinics. I see them on Elkhorn every day mm-hmm. in the summer. Yeah. So they know what they're doing, and they're pretty helpful. We actually just shot a video with them with Kentucky Field not mm-hmm. too long ago. And uh, they, they supply us with our boats that we use on the show, mm-hmm. a Jackson and a Native, mm-hmm. both good boats. But if I was... Honestly, I guess it just completely depends on what kind of fishing, what kind of activities people are planning on doing with their boats. But it seems like a 12-foot boat, like you were just suggesting, mm-hmm. really would be ideal for me or yeah. for, I feel like, it's, your it's for, for If you want to do both, it's the best length. You have enough maneuverability for Elkhorn, uh-huh. but you have enough stability and speed for a small boat. just how we took the Native and the Jackson out, 12-foot boats, mm-hmm. on uh, hmm, Salt River just mm-hmm. above Taylorsville Lake to do a bow fishing shoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can stand up on those boats mm-hmm. just fine. You can stand up and cast, reel on a fish, shoot a bow. So, I mean, they're plenty stable. And one other thing you can look at, too, is some of these outfitters like Canoe, Kentucky, and like there's several in the Louisville area, They have, a lot of them that are located on um, a water body will have demo boats. Exactly. And then every year or two, they get rid of their demo boats, and you can get a great deal on a demo boat. It's yeah. going to have some dings, it's going to have some scratches, but so what? That's it's what, practically a brand new boat. That's what my Hobie was. It was a demo boat. Actually, has a demo stamped right in the back of it, mm-hmm. where, I mean, from the factory, it was a demo boat. Mm-hmm. I got it from Quest in Louisville, and they mm-hmm. would take it out on the Kentucky River, or the mm-hmm. Ohio River. Yeah. And I've got pictures of the people who used this boat before me, because I guess the guys with the store would take it out and fish out of it all mm-hmm. the time. I mean, this guy caught like a 72-pound blue and so i've got a picture of him in my kayak now with this huge catfish and yeah, it's awesome though and an- another thing to to consider is a long time ago i got a negative um reaction to kayaks because i've tried to go fishing in a short sit-in side yeah and most of those are designed for high maneuverability in whitewater yeah and and some of the other there are fishing sit-in sides but a sit on top self bales you don't get wet. 
um, sit inside, your stuff's going to be wet, and you're going to be sitting in yeah. wetness for a lot of the day. No, like, uh, my but, butt. you know, the, the, there's some new Old Town sit-insides that are really nice. A friend of mine has one. But so, it has a great seat, and it's a little bit more elevated. My buddies who are hesitant to go in kayaking with me when I ask them to go are the ones who've had bad experiences in the mm-hmm. past. And most of that's because they were in a kayak that didn't fit. Yeah. And, they were uh, in a whitewater kayak trying to fish. They had a yeah. bad experience. Or just one way too small for them capacity-wise. Exactly. I, I've actually, I weigh 230. Mm-hmm. And one day I got shoved. A 10-foot boat's not enough boat for you. Oh, you know? It's not at all. I got shoved into a boat, though. It was a Jackson. I can't. It, might, it was my aunt's boat. She weighs about 105 pounds. Mm-hmm. And it was the worst day I've ever had on the water. You See, know and I, mean? I had that. So I bought one of those personal pontoon boats uh-huh. where you inflate the pontoons and put a frame on it and strap it to the pontoons uh-huh. and go on. They're, they're great fun. They're great for people who might be a little bit intimidated by whitewater. Because, uh, I mean, you could fall asleep and go through a class one ripple and oh, wake yeah. up. You, you can't flip them. However, they're slow as a as a tortoise. So, so you said a ten foot's too small for me. I know that. I mm-hmm. completely believe it. You also said twelve foot's ideal. But how does somebody figure out what kind of? Because I, I don't I don't know anything about you fitting know, people. Uh, the thing about a ten footer too is you got to remember, uh, shorter, more maneuverable. Mm-hmm. That's good, but that's bad. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're fishing, you want stability. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a twelve foot boat is just going to sit there like a barge. Yeah. And in fishing, stability to me is the number one thing. Yeah. You don't want to lose your, you know, nice gear you've worked oh, yeah. a long time and saved on because That's you flipped true. or, you know. And a 12-foot boat, in uh, the fishing kayaks they have now are so well thought out. I mean, everything's around you. Huh. Uh, but but always prepare like you're going to flip, even if you don't flip. Yeah. Always have everything locked down. I will say, well, See? I guess I do a fairly good job of that. I've flipped before and mm-hmm. lost gear in the Elkhorn, mm-hmm. and that was in a, a 10, 10-and-a-half-foot boat. Yeah. Sit in. I've been, but I typically go out on, the, uh, on my big boat, on the Hobie, and I'm not as careful. I never, mm-hmm. I never have had an issue with it. Only, yeah. only flipped in the Hobie's ocean. a sit on top, correct? Yeah, okay. I, I've only flipped the Hobie in the ocean, and I only flipped it because, as I was coming into beach, I got mm-hmm. a wave caught me and rolled me. Mm-hmm. So that's the only time I've ever flipped it. I've done that several times actually. Yeah. The well, ocean's a learning experience. No doubt. We don't have that here in Kentucky, so it might not be a huge issue. But one of my favorite things to do kayak fishing, besides smallmouth in the creeks. I like going out in the reservoirs. I'm not very successful. I mm-hmm. hate to say it, but it's just hard. It is. Is uh, I like going out on the Kentucky River. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kentucky dr- River is great for kayak. Man, I, I like drift fishing mm-hmm. for catfish. And what I'll do is I go out on the river and I'll take a bunch of jugs and I'll just bait them up and toss them out, bait them up and toss them out. And then I drop my poles off either side and I kick my feet back. I take my dog with me. So mm-hmm. I got my beagle on the boat mm-hmm. and I kick my feet back and I just relax, hang out with some buddies or whoever's there. And we just drift with these jugs down the river. And you get a bite. I mean, you catch fish, and it's relaxing because I bet a, that's fun. It's a lot of fun. You gotta, I mean, have you done that before? No, I haven't. You got to. It's I think fun. I'd be making a great story idea. I've, I've I've been talking to Chad about how we should do it, but mm-hmm. I mean, because like I'll go to uh, Steel Branch, mm-hmm. and I'll put it in at Steel Branch, and I'll just drift down to the Elkhorn, which is in Pool Three. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's about ten miles below Lock Four mm-hmm. in uh, downtown Frankfurt. Yeah. And it's a three mile float from Steel Branch boat ramp to uh, Steel Water. Uh, mm-hmm. The campground, yeah, right there at the mouth of the Elkhorn. So, I mean, that's a fun float. I honestly have more luck in the bend after Stillwater. I'm not sure why. It just seems like there's maybe more fish there, mm-hmm. but it's a fun way to go out and catch some dinner. No doubt. Mm-hmm. No doubt. And we got to wrap this up here pretty soon mm-hmm. because we have a contest winner. I have to go announce in the other All room. Right. But uh, I tell you what. I, so this summer or this spring i'm looking forward to elkhorn of course mm-hmm. i'm looking forward to drennan creek mm-hmm. i want to go hit uh clear creek 
Salt River. Uh, there's a bunch of places around this area, mm -hmm. but I also want to get out there and explore a little bit. I'm going to hit some of the old creeks in Madison County I used to fish. Oh, yes. Uh, Otter, Silver, mm -hmm. Paint Lick, and I'll probably try to hit the uh, that portion of the Kentucky River mm -hmm. around Boonesboro and also around uh, uh, the, the I ferry. used to do good around Boonesboro. I like Boonesboro, where Boone's Creek flows in. Yeah, well, I, I used to paddle up into Boone's Creek yeah. and then float back out. That is an incredible little spot. Last time I was there, there was a big debris pile at the mouth of the creek, and you mm -hmm. couldn't paddle in. Mm. And uh, but we could there's a rock shelf over on the right side and we'd paddle up to it and get out and we'd walk up to the bend. I did paddle into Boone's Creek one time recently. I guess that did get cleared out, but I've only been up there once in the past two or I three years. I was up there this was several years ago. Uh -huh. And uh, I saw a guy catch a monster largemouth right there at the really? mouth of Boone Creek. He walked in from somewhere. I don't know where. Somebody was telling me that a uh, kayaker got killed right there at the mouth of Boone's Creek not too long ago. Well, it's, it's several. That's a popular whitewater run. Uh -huh. A U.K. professor several years ago got hung in a tree and drowned. And, that might be who I'm talking when about. When it was, it was super blown out. I mean, yeah. where chocolate milk in the trees, really dangerous conditions unless you're a world-class well, paddler. It was my buddy who is actually a whitewater guide was telling me about it. He said the guy got hung mm -hmm. right there towards the mouth of Boone's Creek in yeah. some in some trees. Yeah. I thought they were down trees. Maybe these Could were... Could have, yeah. But, I mean, it was up. They show video of what the creek looked like. It was just yeah, way that's, up. That's ridiculous. That's dangerous. you got to be careful. No it. doubt. It's not too hard to be careful. No, it's not. Wear a PFD and use common sense. Yeah. So I'll tell you what. So we're talking about these kayaks and stuff like that. The buddy that I go fish most of the big water with, mm -hmm. uh, he's the one I go out on the uh, Kentucky River. I go out with him on Cumberland, Dale, and Cave. So he fishes the big water with me. Only buddy of mine that does it. He fishes out of a canoe, just old town canoe. Mm -hmm. I mean, he'll spend all night out there on that canoe. And uh, he has a blast. So That's what Kevin has. He's got a nice old town. He's actually just got uh, the bags that go in it. So you can put the flotation bags. Flotation bags, and you don't got to worry about stuff getting is wet or flipping and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, wet bags. Flotation no, flotation bags. bags where they take up the empty room in the. In the so canoe. it gives you more buoyancy. Yeah, and I'll tell you one of the. I don't know if this is the stupidest or the potentially funnest trip we ever tried to do. We wanted to catch Sauger Blowlock for, and we were going to do it out of his canoe. But my buddy, he's a he's a professional whitewater guide. You know, he has a life jacket with a knife on the chest, and I mean, that's what he did. And I wore my PFD and all of the clothing. But it was cold out, and this was uh, when the sauger bite was on. And we went down there, and we put in, and we paddled up in front of the dam in that canoe. And we uh, backed off just a little bit. Current was still pretty strong, and dropped an anchor, tied it off to the nose of the boat, and tried to drift back and have that anchor hold us right there in the current, just downrig for, for sauger. And we thought that if we did it right, we could use that rope to slowly ease ourselves back. You know what I mean? It's not like we had the anchor tied to us. We had it wrapped. So if at any point we needed to, we could just let it go. But it was it was probably potentially pretty dangerous. Took all mm -hmm. the safety precautions we could, but it's still probably not the safest thing in the world. But, but it was, it was Did it flip? No, we never flipped. And we're both good swimmers, had PFDs on. The only reason it was really dangerous is because the water was so cold. Mm -hmm. And we were in a canoe. Yeah. But it was potentially a lot of fun. Well, one of my best friends who I was with, uh, my old graduate school roommate and a friend of the family since I was a kid, so I was with this weekend, uh -huh. he was fishing with his granddaddy below Kermit uh, Wolf Creek Dam. Uh -huh. And this guy didn't know what he was doing. And granddaddy, dad, and grandson, uh -huh. they come up there, and he just takes an anchor and while they're generating, throws anchor out. It grabs immediately. That boat goes, whoop. Like oh yeah. That. Where is where was anchor tied off to? Uh, he didn't. It it grabbed. Oh. He just had no idea. I mean, the current was. They were probably pulling three generators. Oh, that's ridiculous. So you, you don't throw an anchor out in fast. He just inexperienced. And the Cumberland's a river that. And it's so cold. Yeah, it's always cold, but the Cumberland's a river that 
it will surprise you. Even if you've been out on a lot of places and fished a lot of water, mm -hmm. Cumberland's still one that might surprise you the first time you go. Because I, I feel like I've done a lot of fishing. And the first time I went on Cumberland and the second generator opened up, it was a whole new river. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, we were, there with four. We were five or six miles downstream. And it, it went from, like, I think I had walked out. We'd already beached the kayaks. And I'd walked out, and I was casting because this big group of stripers came up in the middle, and they were just hounding oh, something. I don't know what they were hitting. But I said, I'm going to go out there and try to catch one of those stripers. So I waited out about just under hip deep in that freezing cold water to try to cast towards these stripers. And uh, it didn't take five minutes before I was having to move closer to shore because the water was rising. The kayaks almost started drifting away because mm -hmm. the water had come up. They say some people park their cars down there in, in a parking lot, and they'll open up the generators, and their cars will almost be underwater mm -hmm. in no time at all. They might have been 20, I don't know how, how high up it people, comes. But. There's a shelf right there below the dam. People get out there and when it's that deep, and they open up, and then they get stranded on the other side. Yeah, the Cumberland's a different river because I yeah. never have fished anywhere where without rain, the water's rising on you that quick. We first put in, I don't know that I was, I mean, it was crystal clear water, hardly moving. There was people out there. They're waiting, and uh, you know I was having to pedal the kayak. And by the time we were getting off the water, it was like I was steering the kayak. Mm -hmm. I wasn't having to power it because it was moving plenty fast enough on its own. Was this a shoot or just for fun? It was when I went down there with uh, Sloan drift boat fishing his last shoot, okay. right when he was getting ready to retire. It was fun. Went down there with. Did you uh, catch many? Oh yeah, I think well, we caught a ton. No huge I fish. Remember. I think I. Oh, I saw that I wanted to think of the, the guy's name we went down there with. He had a, like a Brandon Polish. Wade? No, he had a Polish last name. It started with a W. Yeah, I know. He's uh, he's with Cumberland Drifters. Yeah, he's with Cumberland yeah. Drifters. I want to say it was like... Wozniacki or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. He fed us lunch. It was good. His wife cooked food. But uh, yeah, we caught fish and it was a good time. He was a, he was a good guy. And uh, like I said, I, after the shoot was over and I was done filming, I got out there and, well, first of all, taking that drone up there was awesome because there's so much fog on the river in the morning and the water's so crystal clear that it made for some great drone shots. So if you're into photography or videography or anything mm -hmm. like that, it was pretty cool. But No doubt. But then after we had beached the kayaks and somebody was running back to get the truck because we had the shuttle, I was out there trying to catch those stripers, and that's when the water was really coming up on a Did you have waders on at all? No. This was summer. Oh, but I can I can deal. Yeah, but I mean, I've been out there in summer though. My skin turns, and my ankles start throbbing. And my skin turns beet red. Well, because 50, just, 50, 50 degrees yeah, or so. Yeah, fifty two or something. It just after a while, it just kills you. It's One chilling. time I was out there, this guy, and he was kind of weird acting. I said, hey, "It was up to here and pushing on him." So you getting a little cold. And I said, "Hey man, and, you know, do you have winter?" I said, "You gonna be all right?" He goes, well, "After about ten minutes, you go numb." I was like, "Yeah, because you're heading into hypothermia." <laughs> You know, they say most people get hypothermia at 53 degrees mm -hmm. uh, because they aren't prepared for it. Yeah. But I've been guilty of that. Never have gotten hypothermia, but I've been guilty of well, making that, those. That guy who invented the kind of invented float fly I told you on the last piece, and that's something you may want to cut in. He was swimming out. His boat got away from him at the marina. Uh -huh. It was in October, and he jumped in and tried to swim after Oh, you told me about that. He never made it. Yeah, you told me he about that. To the boat. Yeah, you un underestimate it for sure. All right, bro. Let's wrap this up and. Uh, do it again sometime uh, soon. All right. Thank you, Lee. No problem. <laughs> Good.